0: Good to see you guys this morning. My name is Robert, uh, one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Uh, if this is your first time with us. Uh, we are glad that you are here. Um, I'd love to see you. I'd uh, love to get to know you. Uh, if I don't grab you before you leave, um, if you're comfortable with it, uh, try to shake my hand and grab me. Uh, I'd love to get to know you uh, and meet you and uh, hear how God uh, brought us under your radar. So please don't get out of here without introducing yourself uh, if I don't find you first. All right, that'll about do it. Uh, Church historian Rodney Stark, I don't know if you're familiar with Rodney, he said that in the history of the church, it was actually everyday people, it was everyday people that God used to turn the world upside down. In fact, this is what he said, he said, the primary change agents in the spread of faith, in the spread of the gospel, in the spread of the Christian church is what he's talking about, were men and women who earned their livelihood in some purely secular manner and simply spoke of their faith to those whom they met in this natural fashion. After studying the the history of the church, Rodney Stark said it was ordinary men and women, just like you and I, who, who lived their everyday lives with gospel intentionality, that in 30 years, 30 years, some A.D. 33, roughly to A.D. 63 that literally turned the world upside down. Everyday life, ordinary men and women live with gospel intentionality. Those are the years and the events and the effects that we have recorded for us in the book of Acts, the book that we've begun studying over the last few weeks. And if you remember, we said in the very beginning that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, also wrote the gospel according to Luke in your Bible and your New Testament, his history, his biography of the person and work of Jesus, and he said in that very clearly that he was setting out to write a record, an accurate record of all that Jesus began to do and teach, and as he began to finish that up, he started his second volume of writing, the book of Acts, and the natural assumption and the natural continuation of the story is that it wasn't just what Jesus began to do and teach, but now what Jesus continues to do and to teach after his resurrection and after his ascension through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, which he then sent out upon his people who began a work, an empowerment of what started out as about a dozen men, some friends and their families, and that has begun, as we've seen, to grow to number some 3,000 plus. It was the risen Jesus who continues to do all that he began to do, who continues to work through his Spirit in his people, as the message of who he is and what he has done has become irresistible. This is what we've been looking at in the book of Acts. And my prayer as we study the book of Acts is that God would awaken in our hearts an eye towards and an understanding of, and and maybe for some of us, a, a taste of for the first time or for the first time in a long time, a taste of the irresistible nature of the person and and work of Jesus, and that God would empower us through his gospel and and by his spirit to run the race that we have here on this earth to the glory of God, and that that irresistible nature of his message that so captivates our hearts would become irresistible through us to those who do not know who he is, who have not experienced the reality of, of what he has done. You see, Jesus is still at work this is what Luke is trying to communicate to us. Jesus is still at work. He's not given up on his people. And for that reason, we should be more than excited. I mean, excited shouldn't even begin to scratch the surface. We should be more than excited about who he is and, and what he has done and, how we understand who he is and how it transforms our life. Because if God could use these guys the way that he used these guys, these ordinary men and women, this ragtag bunch of people who had very little education, little to no education, very few resources to them, but if God could use them and their understanding of who he is and what he has done and his spirit to empower them in 30 years to transform society and civilization as it was known and to continue the impact that it's carried forward, What could he possibly do in 30 years with us? I mean, we should be excited as we begin to study the book of Acts and recognize ordinary men and women who tasted the irresistible nature of the gospel and began to live their everyday lives with gospel intentionality. And in 30 years, 30 years, one generation, God used these men and women to change the world. But what about us? This is what got me this morning as I was praying about this and and talking with us this morning. What about us? What's gonna be our 30 years? And when it's all said and done for us and we look at our time in, in this place, on this earth, if we give ourselves a good 30, 40, 50 years, depending upon where you fall in your life right now, when you think about your life in this earth, what about our 30 years? What's going to be said of us when history looks back upon God's people in this time and in this place? What's going to be said of us in, in our 30 years? If he could use this kind of bunch, what could he do through us? If we became captivated by the irresistible nature of God's grace. If our hearts became captivated, captivated by the power of his mercy towards us. And if we began to live our everyday, ordinary lives with a sense of gospel Intentionality? What if we caught a glimpse of God's great purposes and we actually believed them? And what what's going to be said of us? And this is our 30 years. This morning, the, the question that, that kind of looms over that idea, or the reality, I should say, that looms over that idea, is that what will be said of us is probably going to be termed very to a large degree, greatly, by what we determine our greatest need to be. I mean, what's going to be said of us in 30 years, and as we run the race that we've been given to the glory of God, when history looks back, what's going to be said of us is going to be greatly affected by what we determine and believe to be our single greatest need. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, what, what is the world's greatest need, but yet what is the church's greatest need? Because the answers that we come up with for that question, the way we answer that question, hmm, is gonna determine the course of how we run our race. It's gonna determine the hope that we rest our lives in. And See, here's an example. Let me, let me just show you what I mean by this, just so it doesn't sound too abstract for some of you. In, in the next few weeks, uh, from between now, probably, and, and the end of the year, through the holiday season, Uh, You're going to be hearing from us in in different ways information about what what we're doing this year in our annual missions offering. Every year we take up an offering, and that doesn't go towards our budget. It doesn't go towards our operational expenses. Uh, Those things are paid for by the consistent and generous and sacrificial giving of those who call Redemption Hill home. And when it comes to operations, we don't do more than we get. We don't spend more than God compels you to give. But every single year, towards the end of the year, we, we take up an annual offering towards the purpose of, of furthering God's work, not only here in Richmond, but uh, in the nations. And we're calling that offering this year the Laying Roots and, and Bearing Fruit Campaign. And, and, and we're going to begin talking about that but from now, because I just mentioned it, through the end of the year, and you're going to hear more about that. And the purpose of that is to forward the, the work that God has called us to do in, in cultivating gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people and gospel-centered churches and meeting the needs of communities that God has called us to reach and called us to be in. And here's the thing, if if we tend to define our greatest need as a church by the money we need to do the things we want to do, do you think that will begin to determine the way we operate and the way we do the things that we do? If we perceive our greatest need to be money and resources, then what happens is we say we won't plant gospel-centered churches and we won't be able to cultivate gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people. We won't be able to affect communities in transformative ways until we get certain amounts of money. So therefore, we've got to say things in a certain way and do things in a certain way to begin to gather the type of money that we need. And so when we have X amount of money or when we get this much money, then we'll be able to do those things. What you determine to be your greatest need has massive impact on how you see the race that God has called you to run. So it's very important how we answer these questions and let me answer it for you. We do not believe that our greatest need is God's people in this place and in this time right here and right now is money. Ryan and Chris say I always have a powerful effect of undermining not only their jobs but the things I'm trying to do. <laughs> I'll hire somebody and then say how irrelevant their job actually is. and We're gonna have a, an offering but yet that's not our greatest need so I'm really good at undermining those things. If we were to say that that was our greatest need, it would begin to determine why we did what we did and the way we did what we did. But it's not our greatest need. Money is not our greatest need. It wasn't the church's greatest need in the first century. And it's not our greatest need in the 21st century. So this morning, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts, if you've not gotten there already. Page 780, if you borrowed one of our Bibles. We're going to look at a story. Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. That story is going to be about a man who desperately wanted what he thought he needed. He desperately wanted what he thought his greatest need was, but he didn't get it. Instead, he got something so much better. And it's going to be a story of a church family that understood what their greatest need really was and where they could go to get it met. And I want to say to you this morning as we get started, This is going to be a flyover sermon. This is going to be a 50,000 foot view. We're going to cover two chapters in the Bible. That's one story played out in two scenes with two sermons in the story. And I'm going to make a lot of points. But we're not going to stop and, and, and dig into any of them. But I promise you, come back. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks staying here and going into a better clarification of what's happening. So this is going to be like a touch and go for all of you pilot fans out there. We're going to circle something, come down touch it, and we're going to fly right back up. And by God's grace, we're going to get through uh, two chapters in this amazing story. So let me catch you up to where we are. We'll pray, and then we'll get going. So far, what we've seen that Jesus has ministered on the earth. God has come in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, and he has ministered on this earth. He has shown us the perfect reflection of who God is, and for that we killed him. For that, the church was threatened scared and afraid, and in our sin we killed him. He laid himself down on a cross and died in our place for our sins. He was buried, but God vindicated his sacrifice in our place and rose him from the dead. That's what the book of Luke is talking about, the person and work of Jesus, all that he began to do and teach. And what we've learned is that when he rose from the dead, he appeared to his followers, and for 40 days he taught them. He showed them how everything in the scriptures was always, always pointing towards him and fulfilled in him. And with many convincing proofs, Luke said, he showed them the reality of who he was. And right as they got comfortable with seeing him again and and sensing victory and and all that they had hoped for, he said, here's here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to go back to be with the Father. And the way this is going to work out is that you are going to actually be my witnesses, not only here in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth and all the places you don't want to be. This is how it's all going to work out. But to do that, I'm actually going to empower you All the promises that you waited for, I'm actually gonna empower you by the very Spirit of God that raised me from the dead. And so in obedience and patience and desperation, we saw how the early followers of Christ went back and began to pray and waited patiently and obediently in desperation for God to continue to fulfill his promises, and he did. We see in Acts chapter two, as they gathered for Pentecost, God poured out his Holy Spirit upon his people. We saw how Peter, responding to that moment, empowered by the Holy Spirit, began to explain to all of the people what was actually going on and we began to see how the spirit began to draw people to the message of the gospel and the church was birthed. There in Acts chapter two we see how God drew people to himself in repentance and and faith. And we began to get a snapshot as we saw last week of what their life looked like together. The impact that God had made in pouring out his spirit upon his people and how that overflowed in their lives. We took a little peek at that last week and here's what Luke said, this is how it's gonna fit. In chapter 2, verse 43, Luke said, And awe came upon every soul. This is what was happening as the Spirit was doing His work in the lives of His people. Awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And in verse 47 of chapter 2, Luke said, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so as a story, what's going to happen is that in chapters 3 and 4, Luke is going to give us a little snapshot, a little vignette or a narrative of how the awe was coming upon the people, how many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, and how the Lord was continuing to add to their number day by day, those who were being saved. He's gonna tell us that big picture, and now he's gonna zero it in down in chapters three and four and just give us a snapshot. So that's what's gonna happen. That's a whole lot of information. So we're gonna have to pray, because I'm not known for my brevity. So pray, and we'll ask God to do what only he can do in the next little bit of time that we've got together. Father, thank you for gathering us together as your people and giving us the unimaginable privilege of knowing you and being transformed by you. Father, I ask that your spirit recalibrate our hearts this morning to help us to see what is the world's greatest need. I mean, what is our greatest need? What is your people's greatest need? Lord, and draw us back to yourself as the supplier and the fulfiller of all that we have ever hoped for and all that we have ever needed. We ask that you take the words from my mouth and you do with them what only you can do. And Lord, when we surrender to your word and we put our trust in your word that as it goes forward, it doesn't return void. So Lord, be honored and be glorified this morning and all that we say, uh, Lord, and all that we do. We ask this for your namesake. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter three. We're gonna read, I'm gonna talk, we're gonna read, I'm gonna talk. By God's grace, we're gonna, we're gonna make it happen. Acts chapter three, verse one. So here's what Luke is going to say. Now Peter and John, they were going into the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So here's what you've got to see. The disciples and many of the early followers of Christ, though the Spirit had come and had been poured out upon them and the fulfillment of all they had hoped for had been made known to them and Peter had preached that great message there in the celebration of Pentecost and and unpacked for them the fulfillment of all that Jesus had done and taught and what it meant for them. Many of the devout and, and pious Jewish believers still continued to go to the temple for prayer. They no longer went to the temple to sacrifice animals on behalf of their sins. They understood that to be fulfilled in Jesus. But they would still go for the regular stated hours of prayer. But this time, as they would go to pray, they would pray with new eyes. The same prayers that they had prayed for their entire life The same prayers that their forefathers had prayed for generations and centuries, they now prayed with new eyes as they understood them to be pointing towards and and crying out for a hope in the person and work of Jesus. So Peter and John are just going to the temple to pray at the the ninth hour or three o'clock, which is one of the stated times of prayer, and they were going, as you can understand, to pray in in honor of this person, Jesus, this one who had had transformed them. Verse 2 says that as they were going there to pray, a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those that were entering the temple. Now, here's what you've got to see, because I want want you to picture this. Remember, we're always trying to to catch the reality of what's going on. Peter and John are are on their way to the temple to pray, and, and here comes this man who's being carried on a mat, most likely, by friends or family to the steps, entering in one of the gates that surrounded the temple. There was a wall that surrounded the temple, and there were many gates around the temple, and and they were carrying him to this gate called the Beautiful Gate, which is a really interesting picture because I want you to get this. The Beautiful Gate, historians tell us, was, one of the, was the most opulent gate of all the gates that surrounded the temple. It was layered in Corinthian bronze. In fact, Josephus, one of the early church historians, said it was 50 cubits high and 40 cubits wide. It was overlaid with Corinthian, Corinthian bronze and gold. And it was such a work of art that it far exceeded in value the rest of the gates that were plated in simple silver. So I want you to see this picture. Here's this man who has been lame from birth, being carried and laid down on the steps in front of the most opulent and beautiful gate entering into the temple. I mean, this was, and I I say this in all honesty for those of you that probably date myself, this was a, a, a Sally Struthers moment before Sally Struthers ever got on television. You remember? The videos, all the people around the world in need of help, This was a man that his people were laying right in front of the most beautiful place in all the temple. And here was this crippled man that was being brought out there. You've got to see the picture. And you've got to understand this man, Luke will tell us later almost 40 years old. And he had been this way since the day that he was born. Unable to live a life that the rest of the society had experienced. Dependent upon the care and the concern of those who knew him. See, there were no social services in this time. There were no Israelites with Disabilities Acts, no wheelchair ramps, no wheelchairs, no welfare. There was no social service system in place for this man. His life was totally dependent upon the generosity and concern of other people. And this is what he did day after day. Day after day, he'd be brought to the gates of this temple, and it was a wise decision to bring him there. You see, in early Jewish tradition, giving alms to the poor, giving alms to those in need, giving money and offering to them was considered a meritorious work. You actually earned merit every time you did that. So here's this guy. He knows that the most pious of religious people, the most religious people, are going to show up to the temple at this time to pray. And this is the most beautiful place outside of the temple getting into it. And he has his friends put him right in front of it, knowing that throngs of the most religious people are going to come. And he knows that they're going to, in their minds, earn some kind of merit for giving him aid. It's a wise guy. This is what's happening here. So Peter and John are on their way to see him, on their way to the temple to pray, and they see him. Look at verse 3. It says, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him. As did John. And he said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So see what's happening. Peter and John are, are walking up to the temple. They're gonna go pray. And throngs of people are going as well. Lots of people are going to pray. And here's this man who's lame. He's laid in front of the gate. He's laid in front of the gate that's called beautiful. And Peter and John are on their way. And it says he begins his pitch. He's gonna make his pitch. You know, he's got something he's gonna say. He's got some way to get their attention, to get the money, and to get the alms from them. He makes his pitch, and it says, on their way, Peter and John lock eyes with him. This is a very Peter thing to do. Don't, don't miss the reality of what's going on here. Say, Peter locks eyes with him. He says, look at us. Look at me. I mean, how many times do you find someone, let's say, let's try to make it as, as real as we can. How many times do you come across someone uh, on the corner or somewhere downtown, someone asking for money, someone doing the very thing this guy was doing, and you look him in the eye and say, look at me. That's a very Peter thing to do. What must this guy be feeling? I mean, he, this guy's either going to get spit on, he's going to get hit, he's got a fear of being mocked, or he's expecting something big, one or the other, because who looks at a beggar and commands his attention to be looked at in the eye? This is a guy that was passed over by everyone. And Peter says, look at me. Look at us. It gets his attention, and who knows what the guy was thinking? Maybe he was afraid, maybe he was excited. I, we don't know. It says in verse 6. Peter said, I have no silver and gold. Wah 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 wah. I and mean, what, what did he feel? What did that guy feel like? I have no silver and gold. I mean, what else did that guy really think he needed? I mean, really? What else did he feel like he needed? What else did he want? Not He needed silver and gold to eat. He needed silver and gold to find a place to stay. He needed money. He felt like he knew exactly what it was that he needed. And here comes Peter, demanding his attention, demanding his eye contact. And the first words out of his mouth are, silver and gold, I, I have none. This is what he goes on to say. Silver and gold, I have none, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's Peter. There's an exclamation point there. Rise up and walk. Now, what'd that man think? You've heard this preached so many times. Don't miss the humanity. What'd that man think? I mean, here's a guy that probably doesn't have people talk to him very much. 40 years, lame and crippled, lying on a mat being carried around by friends and family. And here's this guy walking up to pray, telling him, I, I don't have money, which means I don't have any way to help you eat. But here's what I want you to do. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Seriously? Have you seen my feet? Have you seen my ankles? I mean, we don't know. Had, had he heard of Jesus? I mean, this is only 60 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, roughly. Somewhere between 60, 75 days. Had he heard the stories of this Nazarene who had been crucified just 60, 75 days earlier? Had he heard of Peter? I I don't know. Just days earlier, Peter stands up at Pentecost and begins to preach, and some 3,000 are added to the church. Had he he heard of Peter? Did did he know who these guys were that were walking up to him? When Peter said, stand up and walk, did he he know who Jesus was? We, we, We don't know, but... What an interesting thing to say. And look at verse seven. Very Peter thing. He took him by the right hand. Didn't even give him a chance to say no. Didn't even give him a chance to respond. He took him by the right hand and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So before he could say anything, Peter yanks him up, grabs his hand, and pulls him up. Impetuous Peter G. Campbell Morgan, a great churchman of the last century. He said that perhaps only doctors can fully appreciate the meaning of the words that Luke writes. They're the most particular and peculiar of technical words. The word translated feet is only used by Luke and it occurs nowhere else in scripture. It indicates his discrimination between different parts of the human heel. The phrase ankle bones is again a medical phrase to be found nowhere else. And the word leaping up describes the suddenly coming into socket of something that had once been out of place, the articulation of a joint. This then is a very careful medical description of what happened in connection with this man. Imagine the drama. I mean, here's a man who we get by Luke's writing, his ankles and his feet must have been deformed. We get the picture from the words he chose to to use that his ankles and his feet may have been clubbed, but somehow they were deformed. And Peter comes up to him and says, I don't have anything that you think you need, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he yanks the man up. And immediately, Luke says, his ankles and his feet that had once been so deformed, that had never since the moment he was born been right and been able to be used, articulated back into the right position in an instant. What had been crippling him for 40 years was made right, and what would take another 20 years in the 21st century to connect the mind and the body to be able to use were made right, such to the point that the man stood up, walked, and began leaping and praising God. Unbelievable. Don't miss the drama of what's happening. Okay, he made him stand up and walk. No, no, no. He don't miss the instantaneous nature of what God chose to do right here. God mended what was broken in an instant. And he began to leap and he began to praise. Twice, Luke repeats it. He walked and he leaped. He leaped and he walked into the temple, praising God. Look at verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And while he clung to Peter, oh, I love this word. It's like Velcro. This word clung is a word they use in scripture talking, the only, only time it's ever used is talking about somebody getting arrested. So you gotta think about the way an officer would hold on to a prisoner when he would apprehend somebody and not let him go and he, he'd cling to him and hold him tight. This is what's happening. This man is clinging to Peter and John. He's not letting them go. It's like Velcro on Peter and John. While he clung to Peter and John, all of the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So they enter into the gate, into the temple, into Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch, the area where the people would come, and the Gentiles were even allowed, and and massive numbers of people would be found, especially during times of prayer. And they all recognize who this guy is, but they've seen him for 40 years laying on a mat. And now here he is, holding on to Peter and John, singing praises to God, walking and leaping, and crowds begin to gather, because they can't imagine what's going on here. Do you see it? Do you see it in your head? That's the first scene. And here, here's the thing I want us to be, touch down for just a second. Here's the thing I want us to catch. As God's people, it's very important as we go about the purposes for which God has called us to be about, that we always, always, always remember what people need the most. It's always of utter importance that we remember what people's greatest need is. You see, when when this man saw Peter and John coming to him, he naturally asked for what he thought his greatest need was. He naturally pointed them to the thing he felt like he needed more than anything. He needed money. He needed to eat, he needed to survive, he needed to live, he needed to stay warm when it got cold, he needed to find a place, if at all possible, to to put over his head for the evening. He asked very clearly, this is what I need the most. The world had been cruel to this guy, in his mind. No doubt, people had been cruel to him. What he needed wasn't pats on the head, what he needed wasn't sympathy, what he felt like he needed was money. But yet when Peter and John approached this man when they saw him when they were faced again no doubt for the first time the guy's been there for 40 years when they were faced with this man and the suffering of this man this time they were able to differentiate at that point from what he wanted and what he thought he needed to what his greatest need really was. and see as as a church, as God's people, we, we walk a, a very high tightrope <laughs> when it comes to meeting the needs of the world around us. You see, as witnesses that God calls us to be to the person and work of Jesus, we, we have to maintain a really tight balance as we work tangibly to push back the effects of sin and suffering and, and pain in this world. You know, we bear witnesses to the person, uh, bear witness to the person and work of Jesus and its effects of restoration and redemption, and we do that in the way that we, that we tangibly seek to, to see justice come, to see pain taken away, to see suffering removed. That's part of what it means to have been transformed by Jesus, to, to see that restoration work through our lives and, and out into the world around us. But we know that whatever we do however we meet the temporal needs around us, we know ultimately they won't last. And we're faced with that paradox. We know ultimately that whatever we do to meet whatever need is there, ultimately it's going to go away. Ultimately that food will run out or ultimately that coat will wear out. Ultimately that person. that we can do such a great job of keeping warm and keeping fed and keeping comfortable We can do that in such a way that we keep them that way all the way to a Christless eternity. We know in the end, as restoration is played out through God's redemptive story, our temporal works at alleviating those kinds of things won't last. But there is hope. There is hope. But as we put one hand out to meet a need, we have to have our eyes on and our other hand out towards Pointing people to their greatest need, their deepest need. We have to help people understand that in the face of what they're going through, in the face of what they're suffering and what they're dealing with, their greatest need is not simply the alleviation of that pain. It's not simply the removing of that circumstance. It's the dealing with the sin in their heart. And it's the forgiveness of their sin in the face of a holy and righteous God. That's the balance that we have to hold. It's a, t- it's a tricky balance. We should be actively pushing back the realities of sin and suffering and injustice in this world. But at the same time, we are to be ones who do it with an eye towards what the world's greatest and deepest need is. <clears throat> and hear me as I say that this, because <clears throat> there's a lot to be said about how we actually do that. And that's not what this time is for. Don't hear me when I say this. Don't walk out of here hearing me say, okay, we don't need to go and and, and deal with this. We don't need to go and address this circumstance. We don't need to go and meet this need. That's not what I'm saying at all. I mean, Kirk Tower, I don't know if he's here this morning, he's out every week, out every week ministering, meeting the temporal needs of the homeless in this city. We should be doing that. You should be joining Kurt in his efforts to go and to deal with the reality of homelessness just on this corridor, not even the entire city, just on this corridor. I mean, Rick and Nancy Collins are spending the majority of their weeks throughout the month in the prisons around central Virginia, fighting for the justice and the rights of the prisoners, but also one eye aimed at the deepest need that's found in those prisons. I mean, families like the Tom and Jen Hannerhan are, are fighting to see children who are fatherless and have no families find homes. They're caring for the needs of orphans. People are caring for the needs of widows. People are caring for the needs of the homeless. People are caring for the needs of the hungry. And here's what I'm saying. I pray that God burden every single one of you with some way to meet the tangible needs of the world around us that's dealing with the suffering that's come because of sin. I pray that all of you become burdened by that we're actively working on ways to empower you to go and to meet the needs that you're becoming burdened with by God. I pray that you do that, but I pray that you do not do that losing sight of what the world's greatest need actually is. I pray that you go and you put your hand to pushing back the realities of darkness and suffering in this world, knowing that you do that, you do that as you understand what the greatest need really is. See, we said last week when it came to relationships and community, you can join every thing that we do uh, to foster and cultivate community in our, in our church family. You can go to groups. You can go to events. You can do nice things. You can quote what I say. You can quote what other preachers say. You can quote your Bible. You can do all of those things and never actually join the family, never actually become a part of the body. You can create a, se- you can create a separation and a distance between yourself and other people and yourself at God just pretending to be someone that you're not. You can go do all of those things and never actually be a part. And we can do all of these things in meeting the needs of the world around us and attempting to alleviate the suffering and the injustice of the world around us. We can spend our lives and spend our days and spend the hours that God has given us, the best efforts that we have at pushing back the realities of that darkness. And like I said earlier, we can keep people warm, comfortable, and fed all the way to hell. And ultimately, I I, I think about the church at large, especially the church in the West. That's probably an apt description of what we've done in the church for the last 50 years. So as witnesses to the reality of the person and work of Jesus, we must, we must be constantly reminding ourselves and one another of what the world's greatest need is. But secondly, you can do that. And that's all well and good, and you can be reminded of what the greatest need is. But secondly, you've got to be willing to actually do something to meet it. That's where the scene and the story goes. It's one thing to be aware of what's most needed. It's another thing to actually be willing to do something about it. Let's let's keep reading. This is going to get fun. Verse 12, chapter 3. It's fun for me already. And when Peter saw what was happening, as he saw the crowds gathering This man leaping for joy next to him, clinging to him, singing the praises of God. He's just been healed 40 years or crippled. Here he is, and the people are gathered. Here's Peter. When he sees what happens, he addresses the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we've made him walk? I I love this. As Peter gets up to talk, notice what he doesn't talk about. He's not going to talk about the miracle. Peter's going to get up, he's going to address the people, and he's not going to talk about the lame man being healed. He's not going to address what what just happened. He's actually going to say, what you have seen and what you're gawking at, it isn't about me, it isn't about my piety, it isn't about my power, it isn't about my preaching. I mean, if anybody could have boasted of himself, it could have been Peter. I mean, days before, he preaches his first sermon, and 3,000 people get saved. If anybody could have had a big head about themselves, it was Peter. And Peter sees another crowd swarming, just like they did at Pentecost. You know, puffed out his chest and had all kinds of confidence in what he could do and say. But instead of pointing to the miracle, instead of pointing to himself, instead of pointing to anything around him, he simply explains that everything that they see and everything they're wondering about is simply all about the person of Jesus. His first impulse in the midst of this circumstance was to give glory to God. What a check. What a check to pastors like me and, and churches like ours who, whose first instinct is to measure our success by how many people show up to something how many people tweet our names how many friends we have on facebook whatever it may be peter's first impulse in the face of this circumstance was to give glory to god and to make clear that it wasn't about him it wasn't about john and it wasn't even about this man who's now healed it's about jesus his concern was for god's glory and the people's greatest need to be met this is what he says in verse 13 Boy, it's going to be hard to go through this. The God of Abraham, this is what he says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, he has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So he reminds them that just 60 days before, somewhere in that time frame, you actually rejected Jesus when you demanded that we have no king, no king but Caesar, This same Jesus who you delivered over, you declared that he wasn't king. Caesar was king. Verse 14, he said, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Yeah, yeah. not only did you deny Jesus as being king and you claimed no king but Caesar, you actually asked him to release Barabbas, a murderer, one who was known to murder those amongst you. That's what you chose to do. Verse 15, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, and to this we are all witnesses. This is the full horror of what's going on here. And Peter is straight up, straight up. I love that Luke said in Acts chapter 2 that with many other words Peter kept talking because he said Peter talked for a while, but this is a short and sweet sermon. He was straight up with these people. You rejected the Messiah. You killed the author of life, and you wanted a murder in his place. You bear the guilt. Your sins are what is responsible you have denied the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Their verdict on Jesus of Nazareth was that he was weak and that he was cursed. You killed him, Peter says. But God's verdict was very different. You killed him, but God crowned him. God raised Jesus from the dead and has glorified him. This is what Peter I said, look, don't, don't worry about what you see in this man over here. Don't worry about what you see when you look at me. Don't worry about what you see when you look at John. Don't worry about what you see when you look around. This is what you need to know. What you are seeing and what you are dealing with is this man, Jesus, who because of your sin gave himself over to be crucified in your place. And because of his mercy, God vindicated and raised him from the dead. You rejected him, but God vindicated him. You denied him, but God glorified him. This is what you're looking at. This is what you need to see. You don't need to deal with why this man's walking the way he is. You need to deal with the person who made it the way it is. You need to deal with Jesus. This is what Peter is saying. It says in verse 16, and, and by his name, faith in his name, that is what's made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health and the presence of you all. So what you see here is Jesus' work. Not mine, not Peter's, not his. He didn't say anything. He didn't give some kind of magic chant. Had nothing to do with any of that. This was the work of Jesus. It's because of Jesus being glorified that all this has happened. This is what the book of Acts is all about, remember. Luke is telling us the story of all that Jesus continues to do. All that Jesus glorified in heaven at the right hand of the Father continues to do. And this is what Peter is telling these people who have gathered. This is what Jesus, whom you rejected, yet God has raised from the dead and glorified, has continued to do. And because God has raised Jesus from the dead, and because God has glorified him, that means Peter's going to go on to say that all that you had hoped for, and all that you had known through the work of the prophets, all of that's actually been fulfilled. Listen to what he says. We're not going to have time to get into it, but listen. Verse 17, and now, brothers, I I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer Verse 23, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and to those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God has made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and him your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. If God has glorified Jesus, and since God has glorified Jesus, all that you had hoped for and longed for and read in the prophets has been fulfilled. He's the one that you've been waiting for. Peter goes on to be massively clear in this in the way that he said this. He was the suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah talked to you about. He was God's prophet who speaks God's word. He was the seed of Abraham that God promised through him all the people on the earth would be blessed. This miracle, Peter is saying, is showing that God has raised Jesus up, has glorified him, has vindicated his life on this earth, and is now pouring out his promises that you've been waiting for forever through Jesus. And through him, you and the rest of the earth will be blessed. This is what he's saying. Therefore, because God has glorified Jesus, because his glorification means that all of your long-awaited hopes the prophets have been fulfilled, You need to repent. The only right response then is repentance. The only right response is turning from your vindication of yourself through your own righteous deeds and turning towards what God has done for you through Jesus. Peter's saying because of who he is and what he has done, this that you see around you is is pointing to him and is talking about him. And you need to repent. He said in verse 26 that there is actually hope for those that do. There's hope that you be blessed and that you will turn and be saved from all of your wickedness. Despite your wickedness and your rebellion, Peter says, God still wants to bless you. Your sins, he says, can be wiped out. Your sins can be wiped out. That history, that guilt, that condemnation can be wiped away. And not only can they be wiped away, but In their place times of refreshing and strengthening can come. And not only can you be forgiven and your sins be wiped away and your conscience be cleaned and your soul refreshed, but even more importantly, what he's been talking about and what Acts has been talking about so far is that God will continue to fulfill his promise and restoration will come. There is restoration then to hope for and point towards restoration. God is not just talking about your sins being forgiven and your soul being refreshed but all that has been torn apart because of sin and all that we have suffered because of the effects of sin at one point in God's fulfillment in his time all that will be made right. And you can look forward to not only forgiveness and refreshment but a restoration of God's world. That's what Peter is saying. And we've got to understand that it's one thing to keep our eyes directed on what is most needed but it's an altogether different thing to be willing to give to people what is most needed it's one thing to know that the greatest need is for our sins to be dealt with the greatest need for the world is for sin to be dealt with it's another thing to be willing to point them to the one who has dealt with that it's one thing to know it it's one thing to be able to say it it's another thing to be willing to do what needs to be done to point people to the one who has dealt with the problem that all of us face and all of us have to deal with if we're going to be Fruitful, really, in a way that matters in any sense eternally. We're going to have to be a people who don't just know what's needed, but we have to be a willing to give people what's needed. You see, we, we, we can't meet in and of ourselves people's greatest need. We can't do anything and produce anything that can deal with the sin and the guilt in people's hearts, but God has done that for us in Jesus and we're responsible as witnesses to the power of that message, to the power of the person and work of Jesus, to those who can give an account for the difference that that has made in our life. We are responsible then to be willing, to be witnesses, to give what's most needed. And this hit me really, really hard um, this past week. And recently, not too long ago, and our Monday night gospel with the college students. Some of you may have been there. Um, We had an organization come and and talk, and and talk to the students about um, global missions, about reaching nations with the gospel. Um, And they said, you remember this? They they said in, in the meeting that seeing people come to know Jesus was not a sufficient motivation for missions. That missions was simply an effort to go and to meet people, to display for them a relational love and connectedness, um, and to try to, in the time that you're there, figure out a way to meet a temporal need in hopes that through that they might ask you something that you might be able to tell them something about the person of Jesus. But getting people to experience the irresistible nature of God's grace was not a sufficient motivation for missions. When Ray told us that story, I thought he was gonna tell us that he hit somebody afterwards but it hit me really hard because this is the way the church is approaching this the, the greatest need is not that people have their sins dealt with it's not that they know the beauty of God in the face of Christ it's not that they taste the irresistible nature of God's grace and his mercy it's that you know we do something good with the time that we have here on earth to meet a hurt and, and meet a need I thought about that a lot this week because on Thursday I get on a plane and we haven't told you guys this, I'll tell you now. I get on a plane this Thursday and I'm flying to Japan for two weeks. I'm gonna be in Japan for two weeks uh, doing a church planting boot camp, working with pastors and and missionaries in Japan who are seeking to see the gospel take root in that place. Uh, Japan is less than half of 1% um, evangelical. Less than half of 1% of Japan has tasted in any way the saving grace of Jesus. It's an unreached people. And if we perceive people's greatest needs to be their temporal suffering and finding some way to alleviate that, it hit me. I have no reason to go to Japan. Japan is 100% literate. 3% unemployment. Second strongest economy in the world. If I'm just going to meet temporal needs to display some kind of relational love, why would I go to Japan? I mean, they get family and community better than we do. They get the economy better than we do. They get education better than we do. If greatest needs can be met through money and educations and systems and structures, they've got it down. But the reality of it is more people commit suicide in Japan than any other nation in the known world. If you count suicide as murder, they have one of the highest murder rates in the world, the highest murder rate in Western nations, industrialized nations. Less than half of 1% have tasted in any way of the saving grace of Jesus. They live under the condemnation of this thing called a zero defect ethic, which is fantastic for cars and electronics, but horrible for human lives. And there's a generation of people between the ages of 18 and 35 who haven't left their apartments and their homes in the last 14 years feeling like they'll fail society or people or their family in some way if they were to step outside their door. And they've manufactured a world where they can live inside of their home and never have to escape it, never have to get out out of fear of failing somebody. And for that failure, they take their life. If it's just meeting temporal needs, what's the point? And what's the point on getting on a plane and flying over there for two weeks and leaving my family? What's the point in spending time praying and, and allocating dollars and, and time to figuring out if we can be a part of planting a, a gospel-centered church in the middle of one of the most influential cities in all of the world, the number two most influential city in the world, Tokyo, Japan? One, one gospel witness in the entire city. One. What's the point? We can't just be able to define people's greatest needs. We've got to be willing to give them what it is they need. And we can't just define it, and we can't just be willing to give it. We've got to be willing to give it no matter what their response is to it. This is where the story keeps going. Look at this, chapter 4. told you two chapters, two stories. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, so Peter's preaching. I think he's preaching long. I take that as a comfort The priests, those who were offering sacrifices, the Levites, those who were doing the temple work, and the captain of the temple guard, those were the police force of the temple at the time, and the Sadducees came upon them. So all the religious folk see the commotion, and they hear Peter preaching, and they see him talking and mumbling about this man who's been out there begging that they would all recognize now leaping and dancing for joy, and they can't have that kind of thing going on in the temple. It's messing up their little world. It's messing up their control. It's messing up their story. So verse 2, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, they arrested them, and they put him in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they couldn't miss the commotion. They couldn't miss what was going on, and they certainly couldn't tolerate Peter and John preaching resurrection from the dead in the name of this man, Jesus, who had just been crucified some 60 days before. Luke was real clear there when he said it was the Sadducees who came and got him, and we don't have time to talk about the Sadducees, but... The Pharisees didn't like the Christians for religious reasons. The Sadducees didn't like the Christians for political reasons. They were a group of people who kind of rose to power during the, what's called the intertestamental period, the time between the Old and New Testaments. And they created their own little priestly caste for themselves, and they were the elite and the blue bloods and the wealthy of the people of Israel, and they created this political troll, control over temple life. And not only did they not like the Christians for political reasons, but they were the, the um, how would you say, the naturalistic uh, relativists of the time. One of the things they were most ardent about denying was, the, was resurrection. To them, the Messiah was an ideal. This idea of a Jewish Messiah was just a perfect ideal. So they denied a Messiah, and they denied a resurrection. And here are Peter and John with this lame man now leaping in, in joy, and they're preaching resurrection from the dead in the name of Jesus. So they, they can't have that. Look at verse 4. It said, but many of those who had heard the word Believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So again, Peter, witnesses. That's all he does. Remember, Jesus said, you're gonna be my witness. This is what's gonna happen. Not what you should do, but here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna be my witness. To be my witness is just to tell people of what you know of who I am and what I've done, and the difference that's made. So here's Peter for the second time, just being a witness. Just taking the opportunity given to him to tell people about who Jesus is, what he has done, and the difference that makes now 5,000, from 12 to 120 to 3,000 to this to five thousand. he's been talking about what he knows about Jesus. that's it. But it was too late for these guys to actually properly arrest him and try them just as it had been for Jesus. was so sixty days before, remember? They illegally arrested Jesus and then appropriately tried him for crimes he didn't commit. So here it is again, too late to actually be arrested and tried appropriately. So they just arrest him and they throw him in prison. You gotta wonder what Peter was thinking about that. He'd been through this already. He'd been through it with Jesus. Here are these same guys now, some 60 days later, arresting him and throwing him in prison. Probably throwing that crippled man who had been healed in prison too. What must he be thinking? I got to dance for 15 minutes, now I'm in jail. I don't know, he probably doesn't care. But he's probably in prison with Peter and John, too. Look at verse 5. And on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So get the Inquisition here. There's a picture the Inquisition, they've gathered, they're surrounding them. There's these concentric circles of people surrounding Peter and John and and this man and and these educated elite, these wealthy and these social elites are beginning to question Peter and John, these ordinary men, fishermen, ordinary men who had encountered Jesus and who being empowered by his spirit are living their everyday life with, with gospel and intentionality. And they begin to question them. By what power and by what name did you do this? Now know that the question itself is a trap. It's a trap. If they can get Peter and John to say that by any other name other than Jehovah that this man was healed, they could arrest him and kill him. If they claim that there was healing in any other person than Jehovah, they could be put to death. So he's trying to trap them in what's going on. And this is the same people that, remember, had tried and crucified Jesus. And look at this. I I want you to get this. We've got to be willing to give people what's most needed, regardless of the response, right? Don't miss this with Peter. Some 60 days before, what had happened to Peter? Jesus, brought to trial by these same people, being found guilty of crimes he didn't commit, being beaten, prepared to be crucified. Peter's watching on. He'd been with Jesus for three years. He's watching this go down. And what happens by the fire? Those of you who remember the story. This girl looks at Peter and says, "Wait a minute, you're with him, aren't you? Aren't you with him?" No, "No, no, 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 Not me. No, no." Three times, Peter denies being with Jesus in the face of these same people who are persecuting Jesus. His faith, his confidence, his boldness, coward. and he crumbles in the face of what's going on. And ultimately, in fear, he flees the scene, he flees the situation. Now, some 60 days later, here he is, standing in front of those same people. By what power did you do this? Now, look at Peter now. Some 60 days later, look at Peter now. Look at the boldness with which Peter speaks now. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke says, he said to them, rulers of the people and the elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means has this man be healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, the architects, the builders of the temple and of God's people. This stone was rejected by you and has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved this is an absolutely different peter in 60 days peter went from a fearful cowering man to one now empowered by god's spirit speaking with boldness of the person and work of jesus ordinary man empowered by god's spirit and imagine what was going on in the room You rejected him. You were the ones who were supposed to be building this thing. You rejected him. God has now made him the cornerstone. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. Your verdict was weak. God's verdict was glorified. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, verse 13, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They saw a boldness in Peter and John, and a boldness that Luke links to having been with Jesus. And there was no doubt standing next to him, this man who could not contain his energy. I mean, if you think that man was standing still, you're crazy. This man was shaking his legs, this man was moving, this man was bouncing, this man was doing everything he's not been able to do for 40 years while these guys are being questioned. And in the boldness that comes from being empowered by God's spirit, Peter lays it down for these guys. It's unbelievable. To give what's most needed, regardless of the response, will take a boldness that only comes from being with Jesus. It'll take a boldness that only comes from being with Jesus. The thing is, you can dismiss that and say, well, Peter got to see him. Well, Peter got to see him, but Peter also got the same spirit that we got to live within him. It has nothing to do primarily with the proximity you have to the person of Jesus, but the proximity he has inside of you. To give what's most needed, regardless of the response, will take a boldness that comes from having been with Jesus. I love this. Listen to this. Josh Harris was talking about boldness. And he said, boldness is born from a heart of faith, that believes that the power of the gospel is not hindered by our weakness or inadequacy. It's believing that God is at work and his spirit is enabling us and the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. To give what's most needed in face of any type of response from people, we're gonna have to have a boldness that comes from God's spirit. And listen to this. This is how we'll, we'll wrap this up. I told you two chapters, two sermons that I wanna preach them both, but we can't. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny that. We can't deny this guy got saved, this guy got healed. We we can't deny that. They can look and see. But in order that it may not spread further, let us warn them to speak no more in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Imagine that came back in and kind of threatened them. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. Go do your little thing, but just don't deal with Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you've got to judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Witness. Witness. It's that simple. We cannot but be what God has told us to be and empowered us to be. I can't but not tell you of who he is and what he's done. And when they had further threatened them, they let him go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So they released Peter and John and this man. And they let him go back to see the rest of the believers. And I want you to to listen to what was going on. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of Our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and again the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. Peter and John go back and tell what had happened to the people who no doubt were thinking they were going to die. Same followers, some of them, who had waited to hear what would happen with Jesus when he was taken by the same guard. And now Peter and John come back with this lame man and tell them what happened, and they bust out in praise to who God is and what he has done through Jesus. They sing of the mighty works of God, and this is what I want us to see as we end. Here's what, here, listen to this. Verse 29. And now, Lord, this is what they said. they we're going to pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Look, if we're going to be a people who remember that the greatest need not only in us, but around us, (laughs) is that people see that their sins have been dealt with by God through the person of Jesus. And we're going to be able to be witnesses to that reality regardless of the response. It's gonna take a boldness that comes from God's very spirit. It's gonna take a boldness that comes from having been with Jesus. And I want you to see that this was a reality for them because when they prayed, They didn't pray that the threats be taken away. They didn't pray that the suffering stop. They didn't pray that the persecution would stop. They said, Lord, you look upon the threats. They're yours to deal with. The problems, the circumstances, the suffering, they're yours to deal with. Here's what we need. This is what we need. We need you to grant us boldness, to continue to be witnesses to the reality of who you are what you've done. That is our greatest need in this point. We need to be people whose hearts are postured in such a way that our prayer is that God would continue to encourage us, to fill us, to grant us boldness, to continue to be the witnesses that he has called us to be. Our greatest need is a sense of desperation and dependence on God's spirit to encourage us and empower us and enable us to be his witnesses. And this is our 30 years. If you take Acts, this is our 30 years. What's gonna be said of us when it's all done? What's gonna be said of us when our run is done, when our race is finished? Much of what's gonna be said about us is gonna be determined by what we think our greatest need really is. And my prayer for us, my prayer for myself, and my prayer for all of us is that we would sense our greatest need being our sins dealt with by the grace of Jesus, through the person of Jesus. And that God would continue to empower us with boldness to be his people in this place for his glory. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and your spirit's continued presence in our lives. Father, help us to see that you are the supplier of all that we need and that our greatest need is for your transformation in our hearts, for your spirit to empower us, for your spirit to take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. God, give us a boldness that comes from having been with you to be people who give witness who live as witnesses to the reality of your grace and the irresistible nature of your mercy towards us. We ask this, that people would make much of you and that we would run our race with joy. Amen. Amen.